Hope City Church, so excited to be together through technology, wherever you are, however you are part of this service, um, just excited that we get to be together. Uh, you're watching online, so you probably know by now that we decided this week, based on Governor Bashir's requests uh, and, and just really kind of the monitoring the need, uh, the physical health need of our church, we decided to go back to online services for the remainder of the year. Uh, and so we're hoping, I say for the remainder of the year, we're, we're praying and hoping we can get together for some Christmas services the week of Christmas. We'll let you know more about that as we get closer and, and hoping that we can do that in some smaller settings. Uh, but for our weekends, uh, we decided to go online only for uh, the remainder of those weekends for the year. And so while in some ways that's sad because we do love being together, what I am excited about is watching our team uh, this, this morning, uh, our media team, tech team, worship team, everybody uh, pull together and be able to provide church to you wherever you are. Church is a family. It's not just a service. You hear me say it all the time. And so in your living room uh, or your bedroom or your car or wherever you are, um, you are Hope City. And, and so I just love that we get to do this. And, I, and I, hopefully you've seen the message that we put together and the emails that we sent out. Um, but I want you to know just as your pastor that uh, we haven't made these decisions lightly. Uh, we value our time together in person, but we, we, I guess through this process, what I've learned for me is like, there's no absolute right or wrong decision. There's just really hard decisions. And, uh, and so I know some of you are bummed um, and, and a lot of you are not bummed. You understand, uh, but just keep praying for us. Keep praying for our team. Keep praying for our elders, our staff, myself, because uh, we just, you know, the Bible says if you need wisdom, ask God for it. And we've been asking a lot lately uh, for that wisdom. So thank you for being a part of this service. And here's what we're going to do. We are going to continue our series of messages that we've been in uh, called Living on Empty. Living on Empty. And uh, we're taking a few weeks to talk about how to refill your soul when life is overwhelming. Because life feels overwhelming. Life can be and is overwhelming. So what do we do? How does a faith in Jesus uh, respond to that? How, how does a faith in Jesus, does a faith in Jesus, let's ask it this way, does a faith in Jesus make anything different? When life is overwhelming for people who, says, who say, I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, he's the Lord of my life, he's in charge of my life, should that and does that make it any different for believers than it does for people who don't have faith in Jesus? Well, I believe it does. I believe it does. And so we started by talking about how we're weaker than we think we are, but prayer will help us more than we think it will. That was the first week. Uh, and then last week, we talked about how stillness is a choice, prayer is a gift, and peace is a promise. Um, and so just a lot of talk about prayer, a lot of talk about stress and anxiety, feeling overwhelmed. And today, I want to continue by talking about the challenges that we're facing, specifically when it comes to, to mental illness um, and we'll spend a lot of time talking about depression, talking about depression. I want us to talk about this. Unfortunately, the church has not done the best job uh, talking about it. I want us to do that today um, and to dive into this. And let's just start with defining depression. This is from the Oxford uh, Dictionary. Uh, it says that depression is a mental condition characterized by feelings of severe despondency and dejection typically also with feelings of inadequacy and guilt, often accompanied by a lack of energy and disturbance of appetite and sleep, helplessness and hopelessness. That definition just makes you feel worse, doesn't it? 
And uh, here's what I thought as I was reading this definition. I thought, you know what? This touches and affects a lot of people. Maybe when I say the word depression, maybe it brings to mind one kind of feeling or one kind of person. But when you read this definition, really what it made me think is that all of us in some ways are maybe right in the middle of it or just one connection, one step away from feeling despondency, dejection, inadequacy, guilt, lack of energy, disturbance of appetite, helplessness, hopelessness. These are all things that we deal with. And in, in 2020 especially, we're talking to so many people, so many people who more than ever are experiencing these type of emotions, thoughts of uh, ending their lives, thoughts of harming themselves, thoughts of uh, walking away from their family and marriages. And when you begin to talk about these decisions that they're thinking through, they just describe a hopelessness, a helplessness, a uh, not even really knowing or, or, or kind of saying they've never felt this way or experienced this before. And so I want us to talk about that. Um, and I, I think culturally, but even in the church, there, there is a stigma when it comes to, to mental illness. You know, I don't want to say that other sicknesses aren't a big deal because they are, but when you say mental illness, it kind of freaks people out. You know, if you, if you said that you were trying to uh, stay sober, the, the church probably throws its arms around you, has ministries to help you with that. But if you say you're trying to stay sane, there, there's, there's a stigma, it seems to be. If you say you're trying to stay celibate, you know, the church will throw its arms around you and help you do that. But you say you're trying to stay sane, and it feels as if there's just a, a stigma about that. But this is important. I want everybody to please hear me. It's not a sin to be sick. It's not a sin to be sick. And there are all kinds of causes for mental illness, specifically depression. But you also need to know that we're not completely helpless to it. And the reason I say that is because I think sometimes we get this idea that when the anxiety or depression monsters show up, that there's nothing that we can do about it. But what science is finding out more and more is that we, we can do something about it. It's finding out that, that a lot, not all, not all, but a lot uh, of the mental challenges we are facing in our generation are lifestyle-based. Now, again, a lot, but not all. We know that there's clinical depression and there are, there are things that will not necessarily be covered in what we're talking about today that need uh, serious professional help. But a lot of the mental challenges that we face are lifestyle-based. A guy named Stephen Lardy uh, wrote a book called The Depression Cure. And this is what he said. I want to read this quote to you. He said, we were never designed for the sedentary, indoor, socially isolated, fast food-laden, sleep-deprived, frenzy pace of modern life. We were never designed for the sedentary, indoor, socially isolated, fast food laden, sleep deprived, frenzied pace of modern life. Think about it like this. I read it like this um, this week, doing a little research. One author described it. He said, you have the, the brain appetite and instincts of human beings who lived hundreds and thousands of years ago. So, you, so in essence, you have the brain of, you know, cavemen, so to speak, Right? In, in essence, kind of the same machinery working in your body. 
but you are able to hold in your hands at all times technology that is greater than what they had to launch a man into space 60 years ago. So don't you think about that. You've got the same mechanical makeup, the same brain as your ancestors thousands of years ago, but you have the technology greater than what they used to launch a man into space 60 years ago in your hand or your pocket at all times. This is causing problems for our brain. Our brain is confused. Now, here's what I love about the Bible. Did you know that there's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations? There's a whole book in the Bible about being depressed. Lament just means to express grief or sorrow. You've heard me talk before about how in the Psalms, uh, there are three types of psalm, and the, the most popular kinds of psalms, the, the largest um, style of psalms are psalms of lament. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations, and this book is the prophet Jeremiah just writing down his feelings of depression. You may want to go read it. Uh, you can read the whole thing, but I just want to read you two verses, Lamentations three seventeen and 18. This is what the prophet Jeremiah said. He says, peace has been stripped away and I have forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. My personal reading plan right now is taking me through the story of Job. And I've been reading uh, Job and his complaints towards God and his friends' responses to him. And another reminder, just that, that the people in the Bible struggled with the same feelings and emotions that you and I experience. The Bible has sections committed to this idea of mental health. Fear and mental battles were faced and felt by King David and Elijah, some of the disciples, the Apostle Paul. There's all kinds of examples of this. And so, Today, I want us to, to focus specifically on, on one story in 1 Kings. And uh, Pastor Megan actually, um, a, a few months ago, used this story. She read this story to us as a church. But as I was thinking about talking about depression, I, I really could not get away from this story. I think it's probably the best story that we could look to in the Bible for what depression looks like in the life of someone who is a believer. And it's found in 1 Kings, if you have a Bible uh, there with you. I hope you do, by the way. I think, I think sometimes it's hard to focus at home in the living room. I know my family right now, there's a lot of kids running around in the house. And, and so sometimes it's hard to stay focused. And maybe you got your phone, your computer out. It's easy to kind of browse, set your fantasy lineups, you know, or do whatever. I want to encourage you to put that to the side. Grab a Bible for the next 15, 18 minutes with me. Like lean in. Let's focus together. Maybe give the kids an iPad, send them to the room or something. I don't know if they won't sit still. That's bad parenting advice. But anyway, you know what I mean. And I want to encourage you these next 15, 18 minutes, get a Bible, get a notepad, get a journal, lean in. When I'm done, they're going to be singing some songs and worshiping. Don't just rush to the kitchen to get lunch ready. Lean in. Let's spend the next 45 minutes together and see if God won't speak to our hearts and his presence won't fill our hearts and our minds. And so it's 1 Kings chapter 19. It's about a a prophet named Elijah. Now, there was another prophet named Elisha, S-H. This is Elijah with a J. And uh, 
if you're familiar with this story, you know one of the things that makes it so bizarre, and we're going to read it if you've never heard it before. We're going to read it together, but one of the things that makes this story so bizarre is we're going to read about how Elijah has probably his lowest moment mentally, uh, emotionally of his life in chapter 19, but in chapter 18, he probably has the highest most incredible, miraculous, celebrated moment of his life. So, so in 18 is his highest high, and in 19 is his lowest low. And I don't know about you, but I, that experience has been true for my life a lot of times. Isn't it true that the joy you feel holding your child in the hospital is usually followed by some of the craziest emotions and mental thoughts that you have ever, ever had? That's just, that's just one example of, of the highest highs followed by the lowest lows. And in this particular story, in 1 Kings 18, Elijah, used by God, called down, literally called down fire from heaven. He, he, uh, he prayed and God sent fire down from the sky and in the process destroyed uh, the enemies of God. He called down fire and destroyed the enemies of God. And so then in uh, chapter 19, verse 1, it says, When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. And so uh, he's relaying the message of what happened in verse 18, or chapter 18, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you have killed them. So it's a threat. It's a threat. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. And he went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. And then he went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. And he sat down under a solitary, solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Now we're going to read the rest of the story in just a second, but I want to stop and take a moment and just point out that fear is so irrational. Because in chapter 18, if you want to go read it again, Elijah stares down hundreds of false prophets, magicians, uh, devil worshipers, He stares down hundreds of them, is not threatened, afraid, is actually confident, a little bit cocky, calls down fire from heaven. But one threat from one woman at the beginning of chapter 19 and his fear causes him to run. This is a reminder to you and me, fear is irrational. And when you're dealing with the deepest levels of fear and your friends are telling you, you don't have to be afraid, there's nothing to be afraid of, that's not really that helpful because fear is irrational. If you were able to think rationally about it, yeah, you probably wouldn't be afraid. But you're not thinking rationally. And so in these four verses, we see a process that Elijah takes that we take so often. It's kind of a a pattern of unhealth, if you will. And I want to show them to you. What, what Elijah did is what we did. This is the spiral. This is the, we'll just call it the spiral of unhealth, if you want. And we see it in three things, intimidation, isolation, and imagination. So let me just kind of walk you through these. The first thing that happens to, uh, to Elijah is that he is intimidated. He's intimidated. He gets this threat. He gets this, uh, 
this warning from, from Jezebel, and it causes him to be intimidated. Now, you maybe have never physically been threatened that your life is going to be over. Maybe you have. But there are all kinds of things in our life that intimidate us, things that make us afraid, feeling as if we're going to be let go of a job or comparing ourselves to families on social media or looking at our bank account or watching the news. There are all kinds of things that we hear and in a split second, we become intimidated about whatever it is that is out there in front of us. And that's the, that's the first thing that, that happened is he got intimidated. But then the second thing in this spiral of unhealth is isolation. So he runs and then look at what it says. Um, look at what it says in verse three. He said, he left his servant there. He left his servant there. So he's, he, his, he's intimidated. He's, he's fearful. He's panicked. And then he isolates himself. And we, we do the same thing. And and what's interesting is so often, if we will be around people, so often many of the thoughts that are trying to pull us away won't take us as far as they will take us as when we are by ourselves. Because this leads us to the third spiral of unhealth is his imagination. So there's intimidation, isolation, and imagination. Elijah's intimidated, then he leaves his servant and he gets by himself and then his imagination begins to run wild. And this is what happens to you and me when we get intimidated and then we isolate ourselves. Because when, isn't it so funny how when you're trying to encourage yourself, you don't believe you? But when you are terrified, you believe you? That whatever you say is true, I am going to get fired. He is going to break up with me. I'm never going to have children. I'm never going to be married. I'm never going to have money. You say these things to yourself and your mind goes, that's so true. That is so true. But if you say, you know what? You are doing pretty good. Your life is going to be better. You're looking pretty good. You're looking more healthy. You're, you are funny. You do have a great sense of humor. You're like, no, I don't. I don't. I don't. Our, our, our mind believes the worst things we say and rejects the best things that we say. That's why we have to have people around us, the right people around us. This is a spiral of unhealth. And even as I'm saying this, I would be willing to bet that you have uh, experienced this yourself. You think back to the times in your life where you have gotten in some of your darkest places, I'd be willing to bet a couple of things. Number one, I'd be willing to bet that you were alone and I would be willing to bet, number two, that you were thinking thoughts that were so exaggerated this is what Elijah was thinking. He says, kill me, God. I'm, I'm no better than my ancestors. Well, if we're being honest, he is a little bit better than his ancestors. He did some pretty incredible things, but you're not thinking straight when you're in these types of moments. This, if you will allow me for just a second, I just want to kind of get on a soapbox here for a second. This is one of the reasons why I think church is so important, honestly. See, at Hope City, we kind of have a... Um, a, a, an agenda. I don't know if you knew this or not. We do. We have an agenda. We have a hope for you. We have a desire for you that every person who walks through the door, we're, we're not just leaving it all to chance. We pray and trust the Holy Spirit. We want God to reach you wherever you are, but we also have a plan and we're asking God to help us with this plan. And I don't know if you know the plan or not. So I want to take just a moment and I want to show it to you. There's four steps. We have four steps. We want every person at Hope City Church to take. You'll see yourself in these steps. So many of you have already taken them. But the first step that we want somebody to, to take at Hope City is we just want you to come to church. Come to church or participate in church. It doesn't matter what you believe. 
It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian or not. It doesn't matter what your struggles are. It doesn't matter what your upbringing was. It doesn't matter. Just come to church. It doesn't matter if you're high. It doesn't matter if you're drunk. Just come to church. We believe in the power of places. And so we just want you to come to church. Coming to church does not fix all your problems, but it's a great place to be while you're trying to solve and fix your problems. Just come to church. Just come back. If you're watching right now and this is your first time you've ever watched, just, just come back next week. Just watch again next week. We'll, we'll figure it out later. Just come back. Just watch again. That's the first step we want you to take. But then the second step that we hope you'll take at some point is we want you to follow Jesus. Now, you don't have to follow Jesus to walk through the doors the first time. But at some point, here's what we believe happens. As you get around enough people who love Jesus, they're the real thing, the real deal, and you get in the presence of God, we're going to talk about that in a second, we believe the Holy Spirit, that Jesus gets a hold of your heart. And you will either stop coming because you don't want anything to do with Jesus, or you'll keep coming because there's something that interests you about Jesus, and at some point, you decide to follow him. God opens your heart. You raise your hand, or maybe you don't raise your hand, but you decide to follow Jesus. And that begins this process where God begins uh, working out the things in your life to make you more like him. You don't, you're not perfect the first moment you say, Jesus, I want to be saved. Uh, far from it. None of us are. But Jesus begins the process of making you more like him. And all along that way, you make decisions to obey him and to lay certain things down and to commit your life to him. And and this is what happens when you follow Jesus. And what I love about Hope City is that, is that there are people who, uh, some of my friends, some, some of the guys, some of you are watching right now, you came for years. You were just on step one. Right. You know, I don't even really want to be here, to be honest with you. My wife makes me come. It's like, that's all right. Just keep coming. Just keep coming. I don't really like the church, but I like the people. So I'll come. I don't like the service, but I, that's fine. Just keep coming. But then a year and a half later or two years later, you throw your hand up. You commit your life to Jesus Christ. That's step two. Listen, Jesus is our only hope. We love that church is great. We love that church makes us feel better. But Jesus is our only hope. Yeah. I want you to follow Jesus. But then we don't want you to stop right there. Because yes, you can get a Bible. And yes, you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. But a relationship with Jesus was never meant to be solo. All right? Don't, don't, don't be Beyonce. Don't be JT. Be in a band. All right? Don't, don't go solo. All right? So step three is we want you to build friendships. Build friendships. Find people who are going in the same direction as you. Because here's what I can promise you. When you decide to follow Jesus, there are going to be relationships in your life, minute one, that are going to be magnetically pulling you away from who Jesus wants you to be. But he will also put other relationships in your life. That's why we do growth groups. That's why we have serve teams. We want you to connect with people, meet with people. You look around and you see the people who look like they're connected. I can promise you they're in groups. They're serving. They're doing things together and they're connecting. They're building friendships. So if you're not in a growth group, if you're watching right now, we're moving them all online for the time being, probably most of them. You can get in one of those or find some different ways to get connected. But don't try to do this thing by yourself. Let me give you one more. We don't want you to just build friendships, follow Jesus, come to church. All of that, you're kind of just taken. But step four is we want you to make a difference. We, we want you to make a difference. We want you to know that your life matters and that you're doing something that matters to somebody else. That God is using your life in a way that's making a difference in someone else's life. That could be in the church on a Sunday morning or online on a Sunday morning. That could be during the week, but we want you to make a difference. 
And the reason I wanted to take the time to tell you about these four steps for every person who comes to Hope City is because in these four steps, we find the weapon or the tools that we need to fight the intimidation, isolation, and imagination of unhealth. I'm not saying that it's impossible to come to church and not be depressed or uh, not be struggling with your thoughts. Of course it is. People in the Bible struggled with it. We struggle with it. But I am saying that the best way to fight those things with the power of the Holy Spirit, with God's help, is in a great church with your hope in Jesus, with great friends around you and using your life to make a difference. Going farther away and hiding farther out by yourself is never the way to get out of some deep hole of despair. It's never the way. And so we want you, I don't know where you're at in that process, but man, we just wanna help you keep taking steps, keep taking steps. So, so, so let's pick back up with Elijah. Elijah's hanging out by himself, spiraling mentally. Look at verse five. Then he lay down and he slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Bread baked on hot stones really sounds good, I'll be honest with you. And uh, so he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more. The journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai the mountain of God, and there he came to a cave where he spent the night. I love, uh, there's a little bit more, we don't have time to read it all, but I, I love the fact that the first thing that God did for Elijah when he was spiraling out of control was let him take a nap. I love that. That's so God. He didn't give him a workbook, you know, he didn't sign him up for 12 steps. He's like, you know what, you need a nap probably. And then he gave him a good meal, and then he said, won't you take another nap? Come on, that just sounds like, God, I want to be like Jesus, right? I, I just want to take more naps. Anybody, you know, like I just, I want to take more naps. But let, let me do this based on what we read and some that we didn't read. I, I want to ask you, I want to, want to finish our time together because I want to try to provide some answers. I don't want to just talk about it up top philosophically. I want to try to provide some help. I want to ask you four questions to ask yourself if you're feeling depressed. We're going to take these straight out of the story of Elijah. Four questions to ask yourself. If you're feeling depressed, first question is this, am I physically healthy? Am I physically healthy? This this goes back to what we just joked about. But the first thing that God does for Elijah is rest and food. Rest and food. Rest and food. Science is telling us all kinds of things now about how what we're putting in our body is affecting how we're thinking, how we're resting. Different seasons of my walk with Christ, I've taken on a, a season of fasting where I'm, I choose not to, I, I only drink water for a certain number of a period of time, some days or whatever. And it's always interesting to me during those times when I'm not eating, how well I sleep. It's always a reminder to me that what you put into your body affects how rested you are and how you sleep. It's always interesting to me I'm, Reminded of that. I don't feel if I don't have a ton of moral authority, honestly, to get up here and talk about physical health. I've been challenged and convicted this week as I've as I've thought through this as well. But the first question that we would ask is the first thing we saw God do for Elijah, and that is, are you physically healthy? Science is telling us that a walk around the neighborhood does wonders for the brain. 
20 minutes on the treadmill, eating a salad instead of a burger. These are all things. These are spiritual things. The Bible says if it's good, it's God. Every good thing comes from the Father above. And so it may not feel spiritual, but it's, it's all spiritual. And so God says to Elijah, take a nap, rest up, rest up, eat good. And I want to challenge you to do the same thing. Are you trying to fight a mental battle, but physically you, 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 aren't, you don't have the strength to do so? I want to challenge you to get physically healthy. But let me ask you the second question. Number two, am I being honest with God about how I feel? Am I being honest with God about how I feel? We didn't get to read this, but in verse 10, God said to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. We know that this isn't true, by the way. We know that later God will tell Elijah there's 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee, that, that are following God, that believe in God, have faith in God. But in this moment, it's not rational. But Elijah is honest with God about how he feels. And we talked about this the last two weeks extensively. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. But if you're trying to pray or you're trying to talk to God, but you're not talking to God about how you feel, you're missing out on one of the most powerful elements of prayer. God can handle whatever you need to say. He can handle whatever you need to say. However you're feeling, he already knows you're feeling it. He can handle whatever you need to say, whatever words you need to use. He can handle it. He can handle it. And so are you, are you trying to manage this by yourself and not let God in the picture because, because you're not being honest about how you feel? Let me ask you the third question. If you're feeling depressed... Am I experiencing God's presence? Are you experiencing God's presence? I grew up, you know my story, so many of you do. It seem to bring it up every week. But I grew up in some very experiential, uh, what they would call Pentecostal churches. And we talked about God's presence all the time in powerful ways. Um, and, you know, I joke about it. But the truth is, is that there have been defining moments in my life that happened because... Um, I was more aware of God's presence in my, in, in my life, in my vicinity. It's one of the reasons church services matter. It's one of the reasons worship songs matter. It's one of the reasons we have altar space and we do prayer, corporate prayer together. We're going to be doing that hopefully together in January if we have a chance to do that uh, with COVID. It's the, it's the reason why it's different to drive to work listening to worship songs on the radio than it is to listen to NPR podcasts. I love me some NPR, but there's a difference. There's a difference. And it's not that there's two kinds of God's presence. It's not that there's normal God's presence because we know that God's with us all the time. We know that God's always there. And then sometimes there's this like magical extra presence. That's not it. God's presence is always, he's in the room right now where I'm talking. He's in your room right now where you're watching. The same amount of God's presence, all of it, is with you and it's with me. The difference is, whether or not we're trying to be aware of it. And in um, James 4, 7, and 8, 
James says, humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee. So that's the first step. Try to get away from the devil. And second, he says, come close to God and God will come close to you. This is the most famous part of the story. We don't have time to read it, but Elijah goes into a cave and God shows up and he shows up in some powerful ways. He shows up through earthquakes and fires and all kinds of things that God was doing, but God, that was not the whole purpose of what God was doing. He wasn't just showing off, but he was showing that his presence was there. And then he speaks through a whisper, all these different ways that God speaks. But Elijah in that moment is very aware. The Bible says he hears the whisper of God. He pulls his hood up over his head and he comes out And God says again, what are you doing here? Powerful moments in God's presence. And maybe you didn't grow up like me, you know, maybe you didn't grow up where you're comfortable in moments where you're just kind of uh, worshiping and praying to God, wanting to feel God. Maybe it was more motions. Maybe it was more chants. Maybe it was more repeat after me's or things that you memorized, but you never felt the the presence of God in in a real way. My prayer for you is that you would begin to experience that. And one of the best ways to do that is just tell God you want to experience it. God, I want to experience your presence. I want to know you're near me. I want to feel you near me. And then begin to put yourself in positions where you can eliminate the noise that maybe is blocking out knowing that God is with you and begin to put yourself in situations and environments where you're more aware of what God is doing. I want to be close to you, God, as I possibly can. That's a dangerous prayer to pray. But pray it and see if you don't begin to experience God's presence. When you are down in the depths of despair, uh, mind spiraling, heart hardened and dark. One moment, one powerful moment in God's presence can do more than a counseling session and a, uh, a podcast, a book, all those. I love all those things, but one moment in God's presence One moment when you just feel something break in your life or you feel God come into your heart and to your mind. One of the toughest, darkest stretches of my life, several years ago, I was pastoring this church and some things were going on and I was really struggling and I was really down in the dumps and I wrote about it in a book. But luckily, my wife loves Jesus. (laughs) She's the real deal and she's patient with people like me. And I was just having, I was just, it was getting worse. And, and she came in the door one day. She came home from school. It was like three. I hadn't even showered yet. I was just sitting on the couch in sweatpants. Probably had chip crumbs on me. I don't know. And she's like, okay, I've been patient, but I'm, I, we're, I'm going to, I'm coming to, I'm praying for you. I'm like, okay. And she came over and she put her hands on me and just started praying the power of God. And I'm not telling you that in that moment, like I started weeping and everything was over, but something did change in that moment. It may have just been a tiny little crack coming through like the seam of a door, but it was a tiny little crack. It was something that happened in that moment. And I believe it's because we invited God's presence into the situation. Let me give you the fourth question. Fourth question, am I allowing God to use my life? I love this part of the story. Most people don't necessarily get to this part because they kind of stop at the earthquake, fire, whisper part. But after all of that, God says to him, go back in verse 15, go back the way you came. 
When you arrive there, anoint uh, Hazel to be the king of Aram, then anoint Jehu, grandson, uh, to be the king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of uh, Shaphat, from the town of Abel Maholo, should have practiced that pronunciation, to replace you as my prophet. Here's my point. God tells Elijah, he gives him something to do. He says, I want to use your life. This goes back to making a difference. I can promise you when you feel as if your life is making a difference, you will feel better about yourself. Nothing will boost your self-esteem like being used by God. But if you look at your schedule, you look at your time, you look at how you're using all of your energy and you're not able to, to pick out some spots where you're saying, God, my life is yours, use my life however you want to use it. If you're not doing that, then you're not experiencing the power of making a difference in someone else's life. I think a great time to do that is at a church. I know I'm plugging church a lot, but I think it's a powerful place. Even if nothing else in the week is set up that way, if it's just an hour on a Sunday, but it doesn't even have to be on a Sunday. We had a group of men who recently went and helped uh, do landscaping and cut down trees in the yard of someone who needed some help. We have people who go every week to food banks and they help serve in food banks and We have all different kinds of ways. We have people who are not struggling with addictions, but they serve in the recovery ministry just so that they can let God use their life in a way to make a difference. Because when you know God is using your life and it's not just all about you and you getting what you want, but you know God is using your life, it changes things. So here's what I'm not saying. I want to make sure that you hear this. I am not saying that whatever you're feeling can be fixed really easily by some little four-step program. But I am saying that I believe with all of my heart that if you will get physically healthy and if you will get in God's presence and you will be honest with God about how you feel and you will make it a priority to allow God to use your life outside of yourself, doing something for someone else, getting nothing out of it but being a servant for someone else. I believe it will get better. I'm not saying it's going to go away, but I say it will get better. It will get better. Because God created you to be used, to be in his presence, to communicate with him and talk to him. And if you'll do those things, it will get better. Here's my commitment to you as as your pastor, is I want Hope City to be a place where it's okay to not be okay. I want Hope City to be a place where you can be honest about what you're going through and struggling with and not feel judged or not feel on the outside looking in. We haven't always done great about that, but I want us to. And we're going to try to do better about that. And so if you are a part of this church and you would say, yeah, I'm struggling with a lot of what you're describing and honestly even worse. And I'm afraid to even talk about it because it would scare people where I'm at in my mind and in my heart. As your pastor, I want you to know we're committed to you. We're praying for you. There's a place for you here. And we believe that God changes lives. We believe it. We believe it. And the hope of Jesus Christ is powerful. It's more powerful than anything else, any other force in your life that is pulling you down. The hope of Jesus Christ can change everything. I want to pray for us. I want to pray for you wherever you're at, however you're watching this, whatever you're doing right now. 
I want to pray for you, pray for us, that we would not continue to be intimidated, continue to be isolated, continue to let our imagination run wild. We'd come to God. We'd be honest about how we feel. Get in his presence and allow him to use our life. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God, that we are not left in this world on our own, that we don't have to figure out how to solve all of our problems on our own because you sent Jesus Christ to be our hope and to be our life. And that when he died on the cross and when he rose from the dead, you took the same power that raised him to life and you put it in each and every side, every one of us, when we put our faith in him. So God, I pray for that power that raised Christ from the dead to come alive in our lives, hearts, and minds. I pray for every person who's hiding in a cave emotionally. I pray for every person who's isolated themselves. I pray for every person whose imagination is running wild. I pray that in this moment, they would know there's a church that loves them. There's a pastor that loves them. There are friends that love them. And there's a God that loves them. It doesn't have to be this way. And it won't always be this way. And you have something incredible planned for them. You just want to talk to them. You just want to use their life in some way to make a difference. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.